the um, Psalms that we're going to be looking at are the Psalms uh, uh, 62 first, and then 61 is going to be second. Um, and, you know, I am not uh, discouraged because this, uh, uh, this is a small gathering because I do believe that God orchestrates those things. He orchestrates everything. He created this day for me, everything that I have seen, everything that I have heard, every person that I have talked to or around is all in his plan. I so believe that that he literally created the day that I walk in, everything about it. So I just want to pray, and I'm going to deliver, and this is going to be really different. It's going to be different than anything I've ever done, and uh, you're probably not going to be here not really, really late. So we're going to pray. Father God, I feel honored to stand before your people, Lord Jesus. And Father, I feel very small. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that because I feel small, that you will be enlarged in me, O God. And Lord, that the word will go out just as you want it, Father. I'm beholden to you, O Lord, for everything. And I submit myself to you as your humble servant, O God. And I just pray, O oh Lord, that you will be lifted up and glorified. And Lord, any that are discouraged among this flock, anyone, O oh God, that needs direction, Lord Jesus, that you will speak to them and let them leave encouraged, Almighty God, by this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this is really different for me. <laughs> I'm going to preach part of this out of Psalms and part of it out of a movie. Now, that ought to get you intrigued. <laughs> um, Psalm 62, 1 and 2. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. And I might just put in right there, when he's talking about waiting Upon him. That does not mean that you sit down uh, on your behind and sit there and you do nothing. Wait is not, that is, it is not a uh, passive word. But it is to wait and to, to depend on him and to trust God to wait upon him silently. Not fidgeting around and meddling and trying to bring things to pass yourself, but wait upon him. Um, and I want you to, if you would like to turn to Acts 23.11, I have preached out of the Old Testament uh, for not the last nine weeks, so I'm going to get into a little bit of the New Testament. And I'm going to preach about Paul, or teach about Paul. Um, because the Lord, he's wanting you to know that you should not be moved that I shall not be moved by the circumstances of my life or the circumstances of the, the plan that we see for our life and the plan that God sees our life. And sometimes when it's not working out just the way we see it, we, get, we are become moved, and we need to be unmovable. And so in Acts 23.11, 
uh, I'm going to start off. It says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So the Lord is looking ahead in Paul's life, and he sees... And the the Christians have stood around him and prayed with him, and they have told him, and the prophets have prophesied, you're going to have trouble when you go to Jerusalem. And, And he knew that, and he went. And he came out in chains, and he's going to go to Rome in chains. God has already let him know that. And since Paul had been warned by his friends not to go to Jerusalem, he may have begun even to doubt it, maybe, or had some sort of question, but God wanted to reassure him, so he gives him this word, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Left out that part about the chains. You know, we, I, I listen to a lot of preachers, and it's like, whoa, you know, we're just, we're just totally victorious, and if you want that Cadillac, you can just claim it, and if you want that house, or you want that job, you can just claim it, you want, we want to see all this these things happen. Uh, you know, we've got the power. But you know something? God, sometimes we go in chains. Sometimes we end up in the dungeon. It's not all. When you sign up for the Lord, you sign up willing to give your whole life. Your life no longer belongs to you. You have no more choice. You've been bought with a price, a big price. And so your decisions now, you need to walk with God's plan and not have some preconceived idea about what that is. So he, as Paul had borne witness to Jesus as a prisoner in Jerusalem, so he would do, do so as a prisoner in Rome. Paul's chains would glorify God in ways that would have been impossible without them. And at one time, and I taught on this before, when the Lord began to question me, and he said, what do you think is success? And I was stunned by the question. And he said, do you think a megachurch is a a success? And I said, well, I, I don't know, Lord. And he said, do you think Stephen's sermon was a success or a failure? And, I, and he began to let me, he began to make me think about it. Stephen preached the most awesome message. His face shone like the face of an angel. His message was not received, and they drug him out, and they stoned him. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. But as Stephen is going to leave, as his, as his spirit is going to depart and go back to the Lord, Jesus stands up. He, he honors him. He receives him. And what we may look at as, as, as something that is not a success, God looks at it quite differently. And where, which part of Paul's ministry was the greatest? When he, the people, as we will see as we go down through this, that they would walk for miles to just catch a glimpse of him or just to speak to him. But where was the true ministry? Was it in the dungeon? Was it all those books that he has left for us? All those words of encouragement and instruction that he left for us? Was it when the rats were crawling over his feet and he was sitting in his own fecal matter? Or was it when he was standing and and people were applauding him 
and thinking he was something. And so we need to get over ourselves, because sometimes it's when you're in chains that your life speaks. And when you're in great despair, when your life speaks. And I would just say something about my son who has had his heart broken and going through some things. And the Lord spoke to me the other day, and he said, but I'm writing a love letter out of his life. And I'm thinking, I don't even understand that. But I am writing a love letter out of his life, something that's going to be produced by God out of the ashes. And it, it is a wonderful thing when we learn to just submit to God and to his plan. So Paul has got a word. And you think when I have a word and the Lord, if the Lord told me, okay, Linda, uh, you know, you had some problems there in Jerusalem, and, uh, and, and, but you glorified me, you preached my word, now I'm going to send you to Rome. And you'd think everything would go smoothly because of that. But it said in, verse, in chapter, uh, chapter 27, verse 1, it says, And when it was decided, because he's in chains, that he was going to be uh, sailed to Italy, and they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan Imperial Regiment. So entering a ship of, <laughs> I hate these names, <laughs> Andromedium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. And Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, who was the centurion, he treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and to receive care. And when we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And so right off the bat, it's not smooth sailing. And sometimes when we get an assignment from God, we expect everything to just go because God told us we expect everything to just be smooth sailing. And chapter, chapter, verses 4 through 6, it says, this was, this was not a good time for sailing. I'm just paraphrasing this now. It was not a good time for sailing. It was just before the winter months when sailing became difficult because of storms. Because of headwinds, the ship had to sail north of the island of Cyprus, using it and the mainland to break the force of the gale or the uh, hurricane strong winds. Eventually, the travelers reached the port of Myra, where a larger ship was found to sail in Italy. And Paul and his shipmates near Snidus on the southwest tip of Asia Minor, some 130 miles from Myra, or Myra, which would have been their last port of call before sailing across the Aegean Sea to the coast of Greece. However, the wind became so strong that the ship was forced southward. We're off course now. It's forced southward, and the ship sailed along the southern coast of the island of Crete, again using the island to break the force of the wind, and finally the ship docked at a small port called Fair Havens. The season for sailing now was over, and continuing the journey would have been dangerous. Paul warned them, and advised that he foresaw disaster, heavy loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but of their lives. While Paul's advice is heard, the centurion decides to go with the advice of the helmsman 
and the owner of the ship, because they're carrying grain, he probably wanted to get it there in time to get a good price or to have more of an option. And so they found that the fair havens would not be suitable for them, and they didn't want to spend the winter there. In the morning, there was a calm over the sea and a breeze blowing from the south. So the travelers quickly set sail, hugging the shoreline for protection. Suddenly, a violent northeastern storm called Euroclidon hit the ship, preventing the crew from sailing into the, land, into the wind. So they can't, they, they're no longer going forward. The storm drove the ship south of a small island named Clada, which broke the force of the gale long enough for the crew to take some measures to save the ship. And this is something that I know very good and well. They let the ship, the ship was driven by the wind. There was no more control. They were driven by the wind. And there's times in your life that you will feel just like that. Lord, I don't know what's happening. I don't know where I'm going. I feel driven. I'm not getting an answer here. I don't know what's happening. I had a word over my life, but where am I going? And when they came under the shelter of Clara, they got this skiff, which is a small little dinghy, and they pulled it uh, by the ship with great difficulty. Basically, they're in serious trouble. So they lighten the ship. Now sometimes when we're in these places where we're being, we're being driven along, we have to lighten the ship. We have to get rid of some things that are encumbering and weighting us down. And we have to hold the things in this life very, very loosely. If we need to let go of it, we, it shouldn't be any big uh, thing to us. We should be able to let go of it. This is not your home. This is your Motel 6. You got a mansion with the Lord. This is not your home. And we, we plant roots and we build our kingdom around us and we get so staunchly settled into it. And I'm telling you, we're going into a place next year that we will understand this. You have to be willing to let go. And I remember a few years ago when I did a ladies' conference and it was on royalty and they were talking about the royal, you know, the royalty, and, and I, that, that, I understand that. And so uh, I'm one of the speakers, and I'm supposed to speak on that. I'm supposed to speak on the royalty. And they had little things with jewels, and, and it was really wonderful, and, you know, and, uh, and it was very light, and we're just all royal. And the word of the Lord came to me, and he said, there's coming a shaking. There's coming a shaking, and I drove down the streets, and I could see houses with the grass growing up, and you knew that they had been abandoned. We were getting ready. This is when the, when the housing thing happened, and it just, it's houses after house after house, and I was working in the bankruptcy uh, department at that time, working for a local lawyer here, and I mean, Christians in tears just could not make it and having to lose everything that they had worked for. But the thing is, you have to be willing and you have to be able to let it go. 
let it go. You do not, this is not your home, and God owns it all. And you don't, this world, he's your father, and he's going to take care of it. But it was a horrible time. But I'm telling you right now that we're going into something that's going to make that look minor. If there is not a great turnaround in the spirit, and if the Lord, if, if the people of this country do not repent, we're going to go into something much worse. And it's going to affect more people. And we may very well see the total collapse of our economy. Now, what would we do? What would we do when your money doesn't mean anything? When you don't get the Social Security check or the disability check or the paycheck, what do you do? And, this is, and, and we, we have a frivolous word out here. We, you know, I, I just, it's all just like this gospel of there's a great philosophy and this great psychology but we need to, to get serious with God because we literally as a nation are being driven along. And you know, here we've got election coming up and I don't want to get political, but I mean, the, the church could make the difference. The church could do it. They could have done it last time. They could have made the difference, but they're indifferent because this is Jerusalem. We've just been through that Old Testament survey and when Jerusalem sat there and they said, no one will ever penetrate this city. God just loves us. We can do all these things in his temple, and he's just going to excuse it, and it's going to go on. And we are, nothing can happen. And then you read the book of Lamentations, and you say, oh, yes, it can. There is no city, and there's no country on the face of this planet that is immune to the judgments of God upon sin. And when we begin to call everything unholy, every abomination all right, we're in serious trouble. And this nation is in serious trouble. And my, I am grieved, absolutely grieved for it. But Paul, he's going on now. There's, it looks dark. They're being driven. And so when they, they tried to get the, the little, they had the little um, skiff, the little dinghy pulled to the ship. And then in uh, verse 22, it says, Paul tells the men that they should have listened to him, but told him to be in good spirits and take heart, for there will be no loss of life among us, only of the ship. And then verse 23, 24, and he's, Confident because he's had a visitation. It says, For there stood by me this night an angel of the Lord, of God, of God, to whom I belong, and when I serve, and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul, you must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. This is a great word. And so you think, even there, you think, Okay, cool. It's going to be fine now. You know, I've had the, I've, I got the word. And so there's not going to be any more problems. And these sailors are in the dark, and they have no idea what is happening, but they sense the drawing near of some land. And I didn't, I didn't even understand this until I had read 
something about that sailors can actually sense land. It must be a, a sense of the smell. Maybe that's uh, from the seawater to the soil. I don't know, but they can sense when they're getting... Oh, it's motion... Oh, okay. Because I was thinking, that is really cool. <laughs> okay, so they, <clears throat> they sense that they're drawing near some land, and they want to jump the ship and save their own lives and sail off in the lifeboat. I am. From a spiritual point of view, um, Paul gives the advice to the centurion to ensure God's promise and that the centurion believes him. From a practical point of view, if these sailors jump ship, then no one will be able to navigate the ship properly and they will all perish. So that was not a good idea. They were to stay on board. This is the way that the Lord was going to do this. So between 33 and 44, it says, Paul encourages their faith and tells them to eat in order to strengthen their lives and to carry out God's promise. Their fears had possessed them to the point that they had no desire for food, but now trusting in Paul's word, they eat and receive strength. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners because under Roman law, the soldiers themselves would be killed if they could not guard the prisoners properly. But see how the centurion has become so attached to Paul that he kept his soldiers from carrying out this scheme and letting Paul's prophecy be fulfilled as a witness to all that were on board. So in chapter 28, we see Paul on the island of, of Malta for three months, and there he is ministering to the sick. He, what looks like he's totally off course, he has not even reached the destination that God has purposed for him to be. But look how God has used him. He is, he is a willing and usable vessel no matter what. Whether the sun is shining, whether it's raining, whether I'm in chains, whether I am free, whether I am full. And he says that. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. To be abased and how to abound. I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to be full. He knew all these things. And that's what we have to be so flexible in God's hands. So not rigid. So not selfish and so self-contained. But to be like him. To be, I read a Spurgeon commentary. He says, to be like wax in God's hands. Just, just wax, where he can move you around and do what he needs to do with you. So we see that he is there. He's ministering to the sick. And although the storm kept Paul's ship from following the charted path, it could not blow Paul off course from God's will. God had many of his elect hidden away in an obscure corner of the Roman world on the small island of Malta, since Paul's movements were restricted once he became a Roman prisoner, the only way to bring him to the island was through storm and shipwreck. From Paul's perspective, it was hardly a desirable experience. It must have seemed uh, at times like an unscheduled departure from God's plan or like a moment of victory in Satan's struggle to control 
events. I don't believe that. I believe God controls it. But it was no such thing. Throughout, a sovereign God kept a firm hand upon what happened, shaping and pointing events so that they perfectly realized his intentions. And I think of how we get, even in, in, in a service, you know, because I don't do the, uh, the, the kids would know more about this and, and Anthony and Laura, about you when you come in and the sound doesn't work or the toilet overflowed or something is out of order. And, you know, we get so shook up when the plan is not the way we think it should be. And, uh, and, and the Lord is saying, the plan is going to be disrupted. The plans you have will be disrupted. He wants you to be fluid in his hands and to be able to flow with him. And in every situation that you're in, to look for that opportunity to minister. And it's not that you have to create it, because if Jesus Christ truly dwells within you, he is going to flow out of you when there is a need. But so you see that in no matter what the circumstances w- were in his life, I will minister here, and I'll take advantage. I'm not going to sit here and whine and cry and hold my Bible in my hand and sit in my cabin with this, there's this great storm going on and I'm not going to do anything. No, he's out there. He's helping. He's doing things. He's, he's guiding. He's directing. He's encouraging. And that's what God wants for us to be. And, and not to get this elevated ideas of what ministry is. Uh, so when we go through trouble, it is well to remember that the same God who orchestrated the life of Paul also orchestrates our lives to fulfill his, the, the promise. All things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. I, I do not know why this was on. I don't know if anyone's struggling with that. But God just wants you to know right there at the beginning, I shall not be moved. It will, it, you, you don't, he, God wants us to be, we're not moved by our circumstances. No matter what happens. We are going to stay strong, and that's what God is doing to the church right now. First, there's two things. He's separating. He's dividing. We're going, pretty soon, you are not going to recognize the church because you're going to think, oh, my. they, They are accepting everything. Everything is all right. We will accept it right in, and God says, come out. And, and, and you, you're, I don't want you to be part of that. You're going to have to learn how to separate the pure from the vile. So he's separating the apostate church from the remnant. There's not going to be many in the remnant. There never has been. But the ones that will follow after God with their own, with, with our whole heart, and be willing to separate their self, be willing to die, if they have to. But to let truth come out of your mouth without compromise. And when you see something in the word, don't back off. Don't back off. 
And I, I have said that before when I first saw all this stuff that was happening in Iraq and, uh, and with the Christians being persecuted and killed. And I, I heard the little children, they said that they, they, the Christians' homes had been marked and they drugged them out, the parents and the little children, and they took the children. And they told them, you deny Christ, you turn. And those little kids said, no. And they killed them in front of their parents. We don't think it's coming here. Oh, you got another thing coming. Because if this, this nation does not fall on her face and repent, we got real trouble. And do our children know enough? Have we poured enough into them that they could stand in that time? Do they know, do they just know uh, basic things? Do they know the word of God? Do they know, do they really know? Are we just playing church? We need to be pouring it in and pouring it into each other and quit the nonsense and get serious about the things of God. And now that you've got me crying and I've got you crying, then I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to you about movies. And this is Psalm 61, 1 through 4, and this was as real to me as what I just talked to you about. And the, the psalm is, Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. And so I'm going to talk to you about a movie that literally impacted me. And, and, and Don and I were talking about it. And we both started praying in tongues and crying when I remembered a scene in the movie. And so I'm going to talk to you about it. The name of the movie is Thunderheart. How many have seen it? It's an older movie, and it is loosely based on a true event that occurred in the early 1970s on the Pine Ridge Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. And there was an incident that happened there, and uh, the incident in Oglala. And there was a political prisoner by the name of Leonard Pelletier's case. That was what this, and they did a documentary on it. But in the story and in the movie, Ray Lavoie, who was played by Val Kilmer, is an ambitious, up-and-coming FBI agent in the 1970s with great career prospects. The one thing he will not tolerate is any reference to his half-Indian heritage. As far as he is concerned, his loyalties and his culture identify him with the government and his white mother. He is extremely touchy about anything to do with his father, who was an alcoholic, but he was a full-blooded Sioux. However, the FBI wanted to take advantage of this half-Indian blood to bend fences in a politically sensitive murder investigation, and it sends him exactly where he doesn't want to go, to a reservation. 
Further, he is widely advertised as being Indian, though he knows virtually nothing about his heritage and has renounced it to the best of his ability. Once on the reservation, he becomes deeply involved in a truly messy state of affairs and is drawn into situations where he is forced to confront his background and his native spirituality. Despite his consistent prickliness about his heritage, his heart is in the right place, and the reservation chief, who is played by Graham Greene, and a wise spiritual elder, their holy man, who is Chief Telfin Elk, patiently leads him through to the heart of the matter. That part is very, very funny. There are parts that were, because he's so unused, he is not, he's not familiar at all with the, the Indian um, heritage. But anyway, he discovers... Uh, that the government agent, who is Frank Cotell, who's played by Sam Shepard in the movie, and his allies within the tribes are guilty of land grabbing and murder. So they got some of the tribal members, some of the Indians, um, to go along with the government for money. And so the scene that takes me, that scene takes me to the point to, to, is for the end of the film. On several occasions, this holy man, um, he, <clears throat> he's, he's just a funny man, but he has visions. And um, in, the, in the course of the movie, which is, like I say, it's based on the true story, but even Val Kilmer, the, the agent, he also begins to have visions about Wounded Knee, and, and he sees his name, Thunderheart, on a tombstone, and that's it, it, all you know, part of that thing. But um, this holy man sees and envisions problems. He envisions because he's beginning to dig up things and, and he's beginning to have wisdom and he's beginning to see things that have been so hidden. And the, the holy man keeps telling him, when trouble comes, run to the stronghold. Run to the stronghold. When trouble comes, remember to run to the stronghold. And one time when they're riding together, he actually showed him the direction. When there's trouble, run to the stronghold. And so, he, like I said, he even showed him the direction to go. Now, Kilmer, along with his friend, the reservation sheriff, are in a car now that they, 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 they've been outed, so they know. So now they're the, the um, reservation, the agent, the bad agent, he is running after Val Kilmer and the other Indian. And they're in a car, and they're trying to escape the tribal defectors and the guilty government agent. So they keep driving until it's impossible to go any further because now to get to the stronghold, they're off the main road, and they're on this bumpy horrible, pitted-type road, and it's just uh, a desolate. And so they, are, they come to where they can't no longer be in the car, so they're at a dead end. And there's nothing there where the Indian had pointed but this huge, high cliff. And if you've seen, you know, that, that kind of uh, oh, orangey, uh, the way some of the the desert colors. It's kind of an orangey uh, 
tent to that cliff. It's just this huge, big cliff. There's nowhere to go. That's the stronghold. They're at a dead end, no escape, and they are now on foot, and they're standing close to the stronghold. They, the, the bad agent and his men with guns pointed at them tell Kilmer, basically, if you just get in the car and forget what you know, we'll just forget about it. Because they were doing bad things to the Indians, and some of the Indians were participants, but if he would keep his mouth shut, he wouldn't get in trouble, and he could be, they would let it go. And so he, um, he now has to make a choice. He can compromise everything he knows to be true, or he can obey the words of the holy man, go to the stronghold. And he stands there. And Val Kilmer, is a, he's an awesome actor. But I don't know how he did it. But he is standing there, and his whole body, you can see his legs shake, his hands shake. He's in the middle of making a decision. He doesn't know. He thinks he'll probably die. He doesn't know what to do. He has a choice. We have a choice. We stand in a sim similar position from time to time. And you either have to make a choice. I will die. I will compromise. I could, I could walk out of this, hopefully. They probably killed the Indian that was with him, but he could, probably could have walked out of it. But he stands there, and he's just shaking. And all of a sudden, uh, he turns. And he continues to walk toward that, that cliff. There was nothing there. And I'm thinking, oh my God, when I saw it, he's turning, he's shaking. And he walks, keeps walking right up to the cliff. And he's expecting to get shot in the back. And all of a sudden, he turns. And here, the, the bad, the agent, and all the men that were with him, they have their hands up, and they're dropping their weapons. And then it pans over to the above the cliff, and it's loaded with Indians, and they have rifles, and it pans up, and where you can see, and there's cars and motorcycles and things where they have driven in, and they are part the stronghold. And when I, heard, when I saw that, and when I was thinking about it, I could feel myself even trembling. Because we come to that place where the Lord says, run to the stronghold. You might not see it. You may not see the door. But I've got your back. I've got it covered. I've got all the angels of heaven up here. And when I tell you to run to the stronghold, don't be afraid. Even though you don't see the door. And it just looks like a wall there. But it so impressed me. And I thought, Lord, we need to hear that. We need to see it that way. And I know the devil has his strongholds. But they're nothing like God's. <laughs> it's no comparison. And they can come down when we pray with faith. And when we fast and pray, those strongholds will come down. But I don't care how much Satan does. He will not take down the Lord. He will not take down the stronghold that God has set there for us. And so, anyway, this was the two things that God gave me, and I'm thinking, Lord, <laughs> um, this is really different, and I've never done that where I have actually uh, 
taught you out of a movie. But this is what I will end you with, because I'm going to let you out of here early, too. If you believe that God is your defense, let the enemy rage on, because it means nothing. God's got your back. If you believe that God is your rock, what storm can shake you? <laughs> it won't. It's not going to rock your boat. And if you believe that Jesus is your salvation, you should be happy. And doubt and depression has to leave in Jesus' name.